0: Welcome again Uh, for those of you who may have snuck in after we open my name is Chris Wilson I'm the pastor here and it's a great joy to be with you uh, tonight I was at a meeting uh, near the end of this past week and over the course of the the meeting I told the person I was meeting with "I, I I confess something to them that I need to confess to you now I'm not about to disqualify myself from the ministry and you're gonna have to look for a new pastor or anything Well, what I told the person I was meeting with is I said, I don't think that the people that show up weekly that call Restoration Church home or even visitors who are still trying to figure out if this is a church for them, I said, I don't think that they'll ever understand how much their willingness to show up and share their life with us makes me a better pastor and a better preacher. And so before we get into Jonah, I just want to say a heartfelt thank you uh, for showing up. It's a grace to a pastor to have people to preach to. Uh, If you preach to no one, you're crazy. Um, You need to preach to yourself, maybe, occasionally, alone. But if you show up every Sunday and you have no one to preach to, uh, you're either trying to start a cult or you've just not taken the hint. And so uh, on... From, from the bottom of my heart, thank you to every one of you who come on a weekend and week out basis uh, and join us here at Restoration. Uh, tonight, we finish up our six-week series in the book of Jonah, uh, and we're gonna look at the last chapter of Jonah, uh, Jonah chapter four. Much like my college degree, we have stretched a four-chapter book into six weeks. I stretched my four-year degree into five. Um, it was really tough, but I persevered and got it done. Um, and so we're going to be in Jonah chapter four. If you have your Bibles with you, you can turn there. You can click over to uh, that book and that chapter on your phone. Growing up, I was an avid baseball, basketball, and football card collector. Every time I did anything that earned me a little bit of money, I would beg to go to the store. And that the time that I was old enough to have maybe some change uh, was when tops forty. Uh, baseball cards came out. And so you could go get a pack of like five or eight cards and I had a stick of gum in there. And it was just fantastic. And if you know me in, in any capacity outside of being here for a few weeks, you'll not be surprised to hear that all of my baseball cards and uh, all those cards that I collected are at home in binders in alphabetical order by team name uh, and then in alphabetical order by the players on said team. Uh, and they are preserved in alphabetical order so that we will always know Uh, Where they belong. Um, There's one day in particular, though, of my card collecting childhood that sticks out. Um, And my mom is here to verify this story afterwards, if need be. We we had gone out, and I'd left with um, my mom to go run errands, and I was excited because I knew that had been communicated to me in whatever my eight, nine-year-old brain could comprehend that at the end of running errands, I was going to be able to get baseball cards which was all you needed to do to get me to go out of the house and act like a normal person. Uh, Dangle the promise of either a new book or baseball cards in front of me and you've got me. Still works to this day. And um, we got ready to leave and I don't even remember the name of the store we were at. And I was told, oh, well, you're not getting cards today. And I was devastated. And so I, I pouted through the rest of our shopping experience. I pouted all the way back to the car and my mom asked me, she said, what's wrong? I said, you're a liar. And so as my, as my backside met the passenger seat, her backhand met my cheek, and <laughs> rightly so. The, the truth of the matter is, is I didn't know where we stood as a family financially in that moment. I didn't know the reason why my mom had said no. I didn't ask for a further explanation. And as I look back on it now, I see the absolute foolishness of my actions and the arrogance of my own childhood heart to question my mom's character and decision making because she didn't act in exact accordance with how I thought she should. And so it is today as we bring the book of Jonah to a close, we see the prophet throwing a similar temper tantrum with God. God has acted in sovereign saving care for the people of Nineveh, and he has used Jonah's five-word message to bring an entire city to mourning and repentance. And as we pick up the story tonight, we see Jonah burning hot with anger. He is so mad that he begins to question the very character of the God whom he claims to love and to serve. Since Sinclair Ferguson, in his commentary on chapter 4, rightly helps us frame our struggles with reading and applying not only the fourth chapter of Jonah, but for that matter, the entire book of Jonah to our lives when he says, the more familiar we become with Jonah and with what we see of Jonah in our own hearts, the more reluctant we will be to tie up the many loose ends of this book. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful tonight to be gathered as your people, to sing your praises, to read your word, to come to the table, to take communion. And so, Father, if we're honest with ourselves, maybe right now, there's more of Jonah's spirit in us than we would like to admit. For whatever's not going how we expected, for wherever we feel like you and your sovereign care for others have overlooked us. We can feel the same things that Jonah felt. We can have anger towards you. But as we look at Jonah's response tonight, would it serve as a warning? Would it serve as a caution that there is a right way and a wrong way to process our anger before you? There's a way that we can process our anger before you that leads to glad-hearted submission and worship. And there's a way that we can process our anger and bring our anger before you that leads to a cold, calloused heart. So just spirit in grace and in mercy and in truth, maybe break through some of the cold parts of our heart tonight. Where we've maybe never mentioned it, but we harbor bitterness towards you for how you've allowed things or decreed things to happen in our life. And will we trust that even in those areas where we have allowed bitterness to close off parts of us to worship of you, that you in your spirit's power could bring us to a fresh place of worship out of that very bitterness tonight. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. So what Jonah says or Jonah doesn't say it. This is what the writer of Jonah says in Jonah chapter four. I'll read the whole chapter and then we'll go back through it um, in a few different ways. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly and he was angry and he prayed to the Lord and said, "O Lord, it's not this what I said when I was yet in my country. That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. If we look at the first four verses of Jonah chapter 4, we see the prophet with his head down, muttering, kicking at the dusty road, walking out of the now mournful and repentant Nineveh. As he makes his way out of the city, Jonah recounts over and over again in his mind the speedy response of the Ninevites. He gave them a 40-day warning, and they took about 40 minutes to get everyone on board with mourning and repenting. As he moves towards the outskirts of the city, his frustration quickly gives way to anger. And it is a boiling anger at both the Ninevites' reaction to his proclamation and God's own willingness to relent or repent of his stated destruction of Nineveh. Brian Estelle, in his commentary, says the Hebrew literally reads regarding God's actions, it was evil to Jonah, a great evil, and it burned To him. Jonah was not happy with God, to say the least. And here we see in these opening verses the contradictory and enigmatic nature of Jonah, and by extension, ourselves on full display, and it kind of makes us squirm a little bit in its accurate depiction of our hearts even today. Most of you have seen a TV show, a movie, or perhaps you've been unfortunate enough to experience in real life that cringeworthy moment when someone is verbally dressing someone down or venting their frustrations and doesn't realize the person who is the aim of their words is in the room with them. This is what made Michael Scott one of the greatest TV characters of all time. He could just make your whole body cringe in the way that he talked about people, and they would always either still be on the phone because he hadn't hung up, or they were somewhere nearby, and he, either he knew they could hear him or he wasn't aware that they were listening. If we think about this long enough, it makes our skin just kind of crawl with discomfort. Nobody likes being around that, much less if you're the person who's being talked about, right? Right? And so when we read Jonah's angry prayer to God, we simultaneously cringe and shudder to think that a prophet, a mere man, a creature before his creator, would speak with such utter defiance, arrogance, and contempt. When you read Jonah's angry prayer in Jonah 4, 1 through 4, he is not humbly confessing his great love for God's character and attributes. Jonah's language is one of great, sarcasm, of great anger, of a mocking tone. This is not a servant and a prophet humbled before his God. This is a man wanting to make his case before his creator about why his creator is wrong. And so he says, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster, you could almost hear Him saying that to God in a very demeaning voice. This description of God as being gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, relenting from disaster. This is biblical shorthand for the revelation of God's character in the Bible. We see similar wording first in Exodus thirty-four six through seven. It shows up again in Nehemiah nine seventeen and Psalm eighty-six five verses five and fifteen, Psalm one hundred three eight, Psalm one forty-five eight, and Joel chapter two verses thirteen and fourteen. However, unlike those sections of Scripture where there is a humble recognition and work of worship of God, Jonah has allowed his anger to spill over into mocking God's revealed character. This is the wrong way to process your anger before God. It is one thing to not understand how God is working from his omnipotent eternal perspective in your finite and limited life. It is another thing to allow anger to spill over in your mind and in your heart to the point that you begin to openly mock or belittle God's character. Jonah doesn't just stop there. He actually couches his initial disobedience in his fleeing to Tarshish as not that big of a deal and seems to make the illusion that his disobedience actually sprung from God's merciful and gracious character. Jonah's actually trying to say in no uncertain terms that it is actually God's own character that's responsible for Jonah's sinfulness. He says, I knew this is how you were. I knew this is what you would do. That's why I ran in the first place. I mean, that's a bold level of anger to be at, that you would hold up God's character and say, your perfect, holy, righteous character is the reason I'm sinning. I'm not that, look, I almost lost my life telling my mom she was a liar. I ain't about to go before the presence of God and say, oh, you're so gracious and loving and compassionate. Of course I ran. Like, no, I don't want to die. But Jonah is so mad and he is so disconcerted with the evidences of God's grace and mercy to his sworn enemies that he cannot reconcile. A God of justice with a God of mercy. He can't reconcile how God can be both just and the justifier, as Paul would later tell us in Romans. While last week's sermon covered the climax of the book with the Ninevites' repentance, it is actually here in Jonah 4 that the final and perhaps most important work is done in Jonah's life. God is graciously drawing the poison of Jonah's own soul to the surface. Rather than kill him for his attitude, which God would have been justified in doing, God is showing the great links through Jonah that he will go in each of our lives, if he has set his love and affection on us, to draw the deepest, darkest pits of our sinful poison up out of us. So that's what he does with Jonah. Brian Estelle was a huge help throughout this whole series but he astutely observes this about Jonah's anger. He says, Jonah does not wish God to be true to himself. That's Jonah's main issue. He doesn't want God to be true to himself. And how many of us, if we were going to be just really bold and really honest, would say that a lot of the times our frustration with God himself is because we, like Jonah, don't want God to be true to who he is. And Sinclair Ferguson further bolsters this point by making the observation what Jonah wanted was a God made in his own narrow-hearted image, a God with his own prejudices who would only come into fellowship with sinners under certain restrictive conditions. There was an element of the devil's character in Jonah. That is heavy to read when you consider how clearly we can see so much of Jonah's own heart and character in our own life. And what is Jonah's response to God's unwillingness to betray himself? He says he'd rather die. And then God haunts him with the question Do you do well to be angry? And that is the first invitation Jonah gets from God to really examine the condition of his heart. Every other point between Jonah 1 and now, God has never once asked Jonah to deal with his heart. And here is the first invitation to step into the very sin-filled, dark recesses of Jonah's heart and deal with what's there. In May of 1985, when I was just 16 months old, I was reading Reader's Digest. That's not true. (laughs) (laughs) But in May of 1985, Reader's Digest, in one of their little factoid parts of the magazine, said this. When a rattlesnake is cornered, sometimes it becomes so angry that it will bite itself. This is Jonah. Jonah is so angry, so unwilling to accept a God who does not fit his definition of who God should be, that rather than confess his anger and deal with his anger, he just wants to drink more of the poison into his heart and into his soul. He doesn't want to be brought out and dealt with. He wants to corner, he's cornered himself in his anger. And rather than deal with a gracious and loving God, who he's just said, you're gracious and loving, and you're quick to forgive and to relent from disaster. But he says, rather than deal with you on those terms, why don't you just go ahead and take my life? Jonah is a rattlesnake in a corner, and his anger has become so twisted and so wrapped around his heart that he would rather drink the poison of his own sin than have it drawn out and exposed to the light. And the same can be true for us. If we're not honest with ourselves before God, if we're not honest with someone in a discipleship relationship or in a small group setting, if we're not honest about where our heart really stands on things that are going on in our life that we don't understand, we too run the risk of painting ourselves into a corner with our anger towards God. And in our sin and in our rebellion, Rather than bow the knee and confess the goodness and the graciousness and the merciful nature of our God, we will drink poison for as long as it takes. We would rather bite ourselves than confess that God is doing things that we don't necessarily understand or we don't think are fair, but we're going to trust him anyway. Jonah climbs a hill just outside the city and sets up a makeshift booth to keep a silent vigil watching the city of Nineveh go about its mourning and repentance. Jonah is perhaps hopeful that God will see his persistence to see justice from Jonah's vantage point delivered to the Ninevites. And perhaps God will repent of his repenting and actually rain down justice on the Ninevites' head Or perhaps the Ninevites will prove to be lousy repenters like most of us. One day we're crying out that we'll never do a particular sin again if only God will spare us from the worst-case scenario consequences. Who all has been there before, right? You don't have to raise your hand. We've all been there. And two days later, we're right back in the thick of our sins, and we're praying again, God, if you will just get me out of this with no real consequences, I promise I'll never do this again. And so maybe Jonah's just going, look, they're going to do this again. They're going to screw it up. And I want to be here to watch God finally deliver justice. Jonah's holding out hope that he'll see God's justice delivered before he has to go back to Israel. The unrelenting sunshine, the heat of the desert, and the hot east wind coming down from the Iranian mountains made Jonah's perch, even in this makeshift booth, rather uncomfortable. So rather than speak to a prophet who has shown by his words that he has zero desire to listen to God speak anymore. Rather than try to engage him in a conversation, God in his creativity deploys nature under his sovereign hand to serve as an object lesson that will continue to lay bare the heart of the prophet. Uriel Simon helps us grasp what is going on in this story about the plant when he says, But the Lord utterly repudiates Jonah's basic premise that mercy must not be intermingled with justice. It is an error that cannot be eradicated from his heart by additional information, but only by personal experience that will open his eyes to a clearer perception of himself, other human beings, and his God. And what was true for Jonah has been true for most of us in each of our lives. There has been a point where there has been a lack of ability to retain more information about who God is, and we have had to walk through an experience where we have to reconcile the two things in God's nature that we don't think should go together, much like Jonah had to wrestle with justice and mercy being in the same character of the same God. And justice and mercy not violating that character in any way. All of us at some point or another will run through or walk through or crawl through an experience that will force us to deal with our own errors And there are errors that, according to Simon, and I would agree, cannot be eradicated any other way. So it is that overnight, Jonah goes to sleep in this booth. And overnight, a plant springs up and covers Jonah's booth with shade to ease his discomfort. If you go back maybe this week and you just read Jonah again a couple times, the mercy of God to Jonah is so astounding. It's devastatingly beautiful how he mercifully just pursues this prophet who really by this point wants nothing to do with him any longer. We know Jonah knew anybody who's heard the story of Jonah would assume to agree that there is only one way for a plant to appear where the day before there was no plant, and that is by the sovereign decree of God. Jonah responds to this display of God's sovereign care for him with exceeding gladness. But what is Jonah's exceeding gladness for? It's for that plant. It's not for God. Jonah is still so angry at God that even though if you ask him who would cause a plant to grow overnight, he would probably concede that it would have been the sovereign care of the God who had called him taking care of him. But Jonah's exceeding gladness is not in God's merciful care for him. Jonah's exceeding gladness is in that stupid plant. Jonah goes to sleep content with his newfound comfort, after a full day of sitting in the shade, still waiting for Nineveh to face and deal with the justice of God. He goes to bed that night content. And as dawn lightens the eastern sky the next morning, God sovereignly appoints a worm to kill the plant and then sovereignly appoints an east wind to knock the plant down. And as the plant lies dead and withered beside his booth, Jonah again requests death. And it is here that God asks a second time, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? And unlike in chapter 4, where there's silence on Jonah's end, Jonah now answers, Yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. Jonah has answered God's question without once considering the condition of his heart. And in so doing, his words reveal how the poison of his sin has left him with a small, shrunken cold and calloused heart Jonah rejected the invitation to walk into the sins of his own heart with his gracious God and Redeemer answered God with a stiff armed response of yes I do well to be angry for that plant and I do well to just go ahead and die the only thing from Jonah 1 to Jonah 4 the only thing we know for certain is this Jonah only ever truly cared for the plant. Outside of his own life, which in Jonah 2, he offers a prayer, praising God for saving his life. Outside of his own skin, outside of his own life, the only thing Jonah truly cares about in what we know of his life is this plant. How small a life that must have been even to be called by God, and commissioned as a prophet of God, that you could still live a life that small. That you could still have a heart shrink down to that size. It reminds me of uh, 2010 or 2011, some of you will know, I I didn't get a chance to look it up, when the uh, earthquake hit Haiti, um, and just devastated that entire country. Um, I was that night watching North Carolina play basketball against Clemson. And this is not just because they played Clemson la- yesterday and won, but they did. <laughs> I remember watching that, and, and Clemson beat them, and Carolina was good enough that they shouldn't have lost to Clemson. And I mean, I was mad. I was so ticked off that Carolina lost a game to Clemson. And then I just hit previous because I, I have a rule. When Carolina loses, I don't listen to sports talk radio and I don't watch ESPN for a full day. I just leave it alone. I don't need to be reminded of the wounds I have. And so when I hit previous channel, it went to CNN's live coverage of the, hurricane, of the, of the earthquake in Haiti and the aftermath. And in that moment, there was a Jonah plant revelation in my own life. I didn't feel anything for those people. I'm just going to be honest. I was like, well, that's bad. But Carolina lost a ball game. Isn't it crazy the little things we latch on to, the little plants in our own life, that when something happens to something so insignificant, something so not worth our time and our energy and our effort, that we would give emotional, visceral responses to anything other than God. I had to own in that. I mean, it was an uncomfortable moment for me because I, I, I was like, what is wrong with me? Like, there's a real, uh, maybe I need to see a counselor. Like, this is not healthy that I feel this way about a Carolina basketball game, and I can see all this destruction, and I can't get myself to feel empathy for them in the moment because I'm so upset about this basketball game. So, I don't know what that would be for your life, but we all have plants, we all have those things that are the common grace and the common care of God in our lives that we hold on to with a closed fist. And when God touches them, or when God takes them away, we look to him and we say, well, if you're going to do that, go ahead and kill me. Go ahead and take my life. Like, what, what's left to live for if you're going to take this away? What Jonah missed and what we miss is it was never about the plant. It was about God offering himself to Jonah. It was about God offering himself to us. God now has Jonah's attention, and now Jonah appears to be ready to dialogue. But Jonah isn't ready for God's words, and truth be told, neither are we. I spent a lot of my childhood sick. A lot. The most uncomfortable thing about being sick as a child, at any age, I've been this sick since then. The most uncomfortable thing about having a sickness, especially if you wake up, like that that terrible feeling when you wake up in the middle of the night and you know you've got the 24 hour bug, like you don't even have to get out of bed and go throw up the first time, you're just like, dang it, it's here. Is if that goes on long enough, eventually you lose stuff to come up, trying to be as less graphic as possible. what I hated the most about being sick as a kid was when the only thing that was left to come up was bile. It stings your throat, it leaves a bitter taste in your mouth, and it reminds you of just how sick you are. So it is that God can use people and God can use nature and God can use anything else in all creation as he sees fit to draw out the bitter poison of sin from our hearts. And when we think there's no sin left, there's more sin left. And we taste the bitterness of our sin. It stings as we own the reality of it. And we are reminded again and again of just how sick we are. We are also reminded in those moments again and again of how deep and how gracious and how merciful God's love is for us. The book of Jonah closes with the Lord answering Jonah's request to die. It says this in 10 and 11, And the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there were more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle? This is one of two two books in all of Scripture that ends with God asking a question. Jonah ends with a question about God's mercy for Nineveh. Nahum ends with a question about God's judgment of Nineveh. The only two books in the entire Bible that end with God asking a question. Brian Estelle says regarding these last verses, and God's response, he says, Jonah brought the almighty God before the bar of justice and proclaimed him guilty. Now God has had enough. God is indeed slow to speak and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. But he is not bound to stay in conversation with those who have no intention of repenting, listening, and obeying. So he speaks to his prophet a final message time. And in the process, he lays both Jonah and us, the reader, bare before him where we must deal with ourselves and our God on God's terms. That is the message of the last two verses of the book of Jonah. God, in a masterful way that you can do when you are almighty God, argues from the lesser to the greater to drive home just how badly Jonah has missed the point of his mission to Nineveh. Jonah feels this anguish and pity over this plant. But it's a plant he didn't work for and he didn't make grow. Yet he feels this aching sadness at his at the plant's demise, even though it only was around for a day. It wasn't like a plant that Jonah had nurtured from a seed into a seedling into a tree and then like it, it was there for a day and gone by the next day. And so, if Jonah in his humanity can assign such meaning to a plant that is here today and gone tomorrow, shouldn't God in his divine power and love and his position as creator feel the same pity and anguish for those Ninevites who are no less made in God's image than Jonah? And the Israelites shouldn't God be free to pity the eternal souls of those who are unable to make sound moral decisions? After all, and this is true not only for Nineveh and not only for Jonah, but for us. If God doesn't pity the sinner in his sin and visit him with salvation, we will all die separated from Him and eternally lost. However, it's the last clause. It's the way that the whole book ends that exposes everything God wants to deal with in Jonah's heart. Perhaps you could read In All So Much Cattle and try to make the point that all dogs go to heaven while a fantastic movie that I watched a lot growing up, that's not what we're after with In All So Much Cattle. I don't know what the deal is with pets. We'll just figure out when we get there. Amen? Amen. (laughs) But here's the point God is making. The point God is making is, can I have pity on the Ninevites, Jonah, so that they'll care for their animals? If you're going to love this plant so much, then at least let me keep the Ninevites alive so they can keep the cattle alive. It is a gut punch of a question to ask Jonah. The ESV study Bible summarizes this well. It says, if Jonah will not allow God to have compassion on Nineveh for the sake of 120,000 people whom God created and cares for, will Jonah not allow God to have compassion on Nineveh for the sake of the animals? Since after all, Jonah was willing to have compassion on a plant? I I don't ever want to be asked this question. I don't ever want to have to wrestle with this the way that Jonah more than likely did. That I would have to contemplate what it means for God to look at me and say, well, should I not also have pity on those basketball players so you can feel good if they win a game? Should I not have pity on those other people so that you can at least have this byproduct of their existence? Don't we wish we had Jonah's answer? Don't we wish that Jonah 4 had a 12th verse or a 13th verse or a 14th verse? Here's the haunting thing about Jonah. You never hear from him again. The only time Jonah is mentioned after Jonah 4.11 is when Jesus says, Jo- the men of Nineveh will rise up. Not Jonah. Jonah ain't rising up con- to condemn you. The people that responded to Jonah's message will rise up to condemn you because something greater than Jonah is here. The lesser Jonah gives way to the greater Jonah. And all of history is silent about what happens to this prophet sitting on a hill outside of the city. And this is the final masterstroke of this book. You read a quote from Sinclair Ferguson about how this all ends. He says, and I quote, whatever did become of him, we do not really know. The story is left unfinished. But in fact, that is the whole point of its writing. We have examined it as a piece of biography set at a given place and time in history. But it is more than that. It is also a parable. It is shaped in the same way that our Lord's parables are, not only as a fascinating piece of history, but to force us to contemplate our own personal destiny. It carries no conclusion because it summons us to write the final paragraph. It remains unfinished in order that we may provide our own conclusion to its message. For you are Jonah. I am Jonah. We recognize ourselves in the story of this man's life. You're writing Jonah 4, verse 12, with your life. How do you reconcile a God of justice and a God of mercy? How do you reconcile a God who will not bend his will or his sovereign love to your narrow-minded definition of who is worth saving and who is not? What will you do with a God? who stands over all of history and orchestrates it towards its perfect end, which is the glorification and exaltation and worship of his son. And that will be intensified and magnified by those who he has sovereignly loved and saved. And so you get the chance to write the ending of Jonah with your own life. But I have to admit it would be rather depressing if the book of Jonah was the absolute end of Scripture. A petulant prophet stewing in anger of the grace and mercy of God that has been extended to the Gentiles, to the others. I mean, there would be a glimmer of hope, but it wouldn't be a hope strong enough to support the full weight of our lives resting on it. The hope at the end of Jonah is too flimsy a hope. But there's more to the story of Scripture. If we move forward in biblical redemptive history, we find another truer and better prophet outside of the city on a hill. And he is not sitting under a shade tree, recounting perceived wrongs at the hand of God. He is hanging from a tree, bearing the weight of God's wrath for all of our wrongs. He is not pursuing death as a means of selfish relief. He is embracing death as a means of redemption. He is not begrudging in his offer of forgiveness, grace, and mercy. He willingly empties himself, and he prays for those who are nailing him to the cross, and he sheds his blood for his enemies. He is not vomited out of the earth because of disobedience and given a second chance. He walks out of the grave victorious and vindicated by his obedience and offers new life to all who will. Believe for the Jew and the Gentile. He is our Savior, He is our King, He is our Christ, and He is our Redeemer, and He is worth our whole life. Let's pray.